This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. The Supreme Court term is over, and although it didn't have some of the high-profile cases that we've come to expect the court to decide, it did have its own drama, with Amy Coney Barrett joining the court as a last-minute replacement for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Former President Trump solidified his mark on the court, and he left it with a 6-3 conservative majority. But the votes didn't always follow partisan lines, leading some observers to remark on a surprisingly moderate court term. Not so fast, says Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Linda Greenhouse. The longtime court reporter and columnist for the New York Times saw the justices expand their role in religious issues and further damage the Voting Rights Act. As she did last year at this time, Greenhouse joined me for a live special Zoom event where we took questions from the audience. In part one of our conversation, we talk about that major elections case and also what Greenhouse made of this new court. She does have a new book coming out this fall. It's called Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. Linda Greenhouse, welcome back to Steady Habits. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. As, as you know, I am a daily reader of The Mirror and a donor to The Mirror, so I'm, I'm happy to do this. We're really glad to have you once again, and, and obviously very happy to have you as a donor as well. So we talked last year after a very interesting Supreme Court term, and this is another interesting one. It maybe didn't get the same sort of headlines, but there certainly was an awful lot of change in the court this year. Let's just step back before we get into some of the details, Linda, and what did you take away from the Supreme Court term more than anything else? Well, of course, the, the question going into the term, I mean, it's hard to believe that a year ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive, right? Her death in mid-September ushered in the prospect of major change. So President Trump has put three justices on the court, as people know, uh, three justices who are to the right of the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who's a very conservative judge. So really the question going into the term was, is it still gonna be the Roberts court? He's got five justices to his right, three to his left. The five don't need him. What's gonna be the deal with this? I think my takeaway is he actually did manage to exercise, continue exercising a fair amount of leadership, not on everything. Uh, they ran to his right on religion, which I think was a, a, a major takeaway from the term, what the court did to the government efforts to keep the public safe by placing capacity limits on worship services. Uh, Roberts believed in deferring to the experts on that. And the five justices to his right said, you know, nuts to that, uh, worship is worship. We don't care what the experts say. I mean, I could go on about that <laughs> if people want me to. Uh, but on the, what I'd say was his, the core of his project is in part uh, voting rights. Uh, that is to say, voting non-rights, one might say. He actually, of course, he wrote the, the major Voting Rights Act opinion uh, back in 2013, Shelby County. Uh, and he didn't write the one this time, but he assigned it to Sam Alito, and it really carried out um, 
I'm sure, his preference in terms of a very, very stingy interpretation of what was left of the Voting Rights Act after Shelby County. So, you know, those are my major, my major takeaways. Obviously, there's a lot to discuss and there's a lot, a lot of nuance. Any, any term of the Supreme Court is really a, a snapshot in a very dynamic process. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to talk more about any of these things. Well, well maybe though we can just spend a little bit more time on this idea of, of the Roberts Court with five justices, as you say, to his right, you you have already said a bit about the leadership that he displayed in some ways more so than others. Talk a bit more about the role of a chief justice when you have a court that is balanced in this particular way, when, as you say, Linda, they don't need John Roberts to come along with them if they want to get something done. Right. Now, those five, of course, are not all fungible. These are five very different individuals. And so what we saw was um, Red Kavanaugh kind of gave the chief cover in a number of cases. Uh, so did, in a way, Amy Coney Barrett. That was a bit of a surprise, I think, to many people. People, given the, um, the really norm-breaking way that uh, Donald Trump uh, foisted her onto the Supreme Court and really nominated her before Ruth Ginsburg had been buried, literally. Um, I think uh, those of us on the moderate to progressive side of the street really expected um, expected the worst. And I don't think that occurred. She obviously uh, is a quite conservative individual. She's smart. Uh, she's picked her spots. Um, they didn't give her a whole lot of work to do. She only wrote four merits opinions. I think she actually lost one case um, that was not one of the high-profile cases. Um, but, you know, so the, the five to Robert's right uh, were not always on his right. They were in league, some of them at least were in league with him in, in, in certain cases. So it's a, it's a complex, complex picture. But I think I'm, I'm just projecting, I'm just guessing that by the end of the term, he um, maybe was a little bit relieved uh, that things didn't go worse for him. That has been a lot of the commentary following this term and during this term as well, though, that these five very conservative justices aren't always of a group and that they are very different. Did you see that playing out in in more ways than maybe you expected? How did you view this this group of conservatives? Well, you know, the court decided 58 cases this term with, with full opinions. They decided a number of other important cases and what's called the shadow docket. These are cases where the court has not formally granted them. Uh, it tends to issue orders, uh, you know, Thanksgiving Eve, the middle of the night, whatever. Uh, so there were more of those. But um, I think most of the cases that people are pointing to as, oh, look how unified they were, really, are not the major cases. I mean, they weren't unified at all in the voting rights, that case that came down at the end of the term. They weren't unified at all in a major property rights case that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention. They looked unified in the big, the Trump's big religion case, which was the case from Philadelphia about whether the city uh, could refuse to renew the contract of a Catholic social service agency that would not consider same-sex married couples as potential foster parents under the city contract. Uh, the vote was nine nothing for the 
church agency, but it wasn't nine nothing on the the heart of the matter, which is uh, at what point does religion? I hate to use the word Trump, but you know Trump other claims such as the claim to non discrimination, um, and there was a lot of you know angst over that case, and I think what the case ends up showing us is that religion is going to win one way or the other uh, in this court. And that's a major change uh, and a very consequential one. So, uh, you know, as I say, the kind of the, the devil's in the details in a lot of these cases, uh, but kind of pound for pound, it was a very conservative term in the cases that matter. Out of those 58, obviously the Supreme Court case matters a lot to people whose case it was. But out of the 58 cases, I don't think there were 10 that really kind of um, reached the uh, you know, surface of, of public interest. And of those 10, it was a conservative court for sure. So, so you don't buy a lot of what people viewed during this court term, that this was far more moderate than was expected? No, I don't really. And I kind of, um, a, a red flag for me is the kind of uh, Let's find out what kind of term it was by counting by numbers, who mm-hmm. voted with whom, and who were the coalitions and all that. Because that, when you're counting by numbers, you're assuming that all the cases are the same. And they're not. Some cases really, really matter to how we live as a democratic society. And that's voting rights. And I strongly believe that's the religion cases. And so you've got to you know, focus on those cases, not the cases that you never heard of going into the term and you're never going to hear about again. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think, you know, some people have missed the boat and, and you know, we, we love our numbers. We're all, you know, maybe we all grew up as baseball fans and we love statistics and I think they're going to reveal the truth. But um, I don't think that's the case when it comes to the Supreme Court. Well, maybe you could talk a bit more about that because you, your newspaper, the New York Times, uh, did a very nice, big analysis with a lot of numbers. And you know, there's a chart in here. It says conservative justices most likely to join the Democratic appointees. And at the top of the list is Brett Kavanaugh, 85%. And someone might read that and say, ah, Brett Kavanaugh didn't turn out to be so in quotes, bad or good, as we thought that he would be, depending on what side you were on. But you say that that doesn't really tell the tale. It doesn't cut it for me. It really doesn't. Um, you, you know, I, I think back to uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, who was an appointee. He was Gerald Ford's only Supreme Court appointee. He was, uh, you might say, kind of Rockefeller Republican of his time. And he issued a very strong dissent in a case called uh, Parents Involved. It was a, a race case in um, 2007. And in which he said, uh, the court that I joined in 1976 never would have gone along with this opinion. But he said, every justice who's been appointed while I've been on the bench has been to the right of the justice they replaced. And so the center, there's always mm. gonna be a center of gravity and there's an odd number of justices, maybe there shouldn't be, but there is. Uh, so there's always going to be a, quote, median justice, which right now statistically seems to be Brett Kavanaugh. But that doesn't really tell us the essence of what the court is about. And, and so that's why I push back on, on the, the sort of what I call the paint-by-numbers uh, way to try to understand the court. Is it fair to say, though, that 
despite the fact that it's clearly a much more conservative court, the fact that it's a bit fluid, that it's a bit more dynamic, and that you don't have you know a, a Justice Kennedy that you're just waiting to see, is he going to be on this side or this side? And then we're going to know what happens. I mean, at this point, you don't have that central key figure. And I think those of us who are watching, say, the United States Senate in the overwhelming amount of weight that a Joe Manchin from West Virginia seems to carry around with him right now, we, it's very easy to think, is it, to, is it better to have one person who holds all this power or to have things a little bit more diffuse? And we don't exactly know who's going to be the swing vote on, on one case or the other. Well, that's a very fair point, John. Um, it's more like the court that I first started covering when I had the Daily Beat in the late 1970s, where there was a middle of the court, three, four, sometimes five justices, uh, and so somebody framing a case and going up there to argue a case couldn't just focus on the guy or the woman it was before Kennedy it was Santa Day O'Connor, who was that so-called swing justice, but really had to frame an argument that was going to appeal to that to that center core. And and I think um, I, I think we did see something about that this term. But you know, I'll say something else. I mean, it, the the docket of the term was kind of skewed. The one major missing piece, aside from the voting rights case, which is, of course is about race, but it wasn't it wasn't frontally about race, um, was was race. So the court got the appeal uh, in the Harvard admissions case, the claim by kind of a phony, you know, phony put together group of so-called applicants to Harvard. Uh, that they've been discriminated against in admissions and came to the court. And I certainly would not have been surprised if the court had taken this case, uh, but they didn't. They didn't turn it down either. They asked for the views of the Solicitor General. They asked for the Biden administration's views, which is a way of kicking a can down the road. And they won't get those views back till probably six months from now. And if they are inclined to grant that case, maybe they'll grant it in time to be decided next term. Chances are they may not be in time. Uh, so, you know, we didn't we didn't see all the hot button stuff. And of course, next term we will. We've got a major Second Amendment gun rights case, and we've got a major abortion case. And so I say to people who say, oh, it's a moderate court, um, you know, take a nice nap over the summer, they're on recess, <laughs> and they'll come back and watch that space, and uh, you may not be singing the same tune a year from now. Let, let's talk about this this voting rights case, because so much of the political conversation leading up to the election, during the election, post-election, has all been around voting rights, the ability of people to vote a certain way. And right here in Connecticut, I mean, we saw this play out in a very, very interesting way. Connecticut has been terrible, in my view, I can say, in terms of allowing people the ability to vote through the mail. But because of the pandemic, people in Connecticut turned out in record numbers to vote because we made it a little bit easier. We see following uh, the election that some states are trying to crack down and uh, change their voting laws, make it much harder for people to vote. So th this ruling on voting rights really came as this issue is being debated more than just about anything else. So maybe you can walk us through that case a little bit and, and why it was so important. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When the case was argued <clears throat> back in the uh, early spring, 
it, it didn't get a huge amount of attention. I think it, it seemed as if it kind of came out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden, of course, we saw what was happening in Georgia, where now it's a crime to give somebody water while they're waiting in line and, you know, so on. And the case gained an enormous amount of salience, basically while it was sitting there on the court's docket. So what is it about? Um, it, it's, it, it's a case that really kind of resides in the weeds. It's what a plaintiff has to prove, how you go about proving a Voting Rights Act case under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So Section 2, unlike the one that was, unlike Section 5 that was disabled in the Shelby County case, applies nationwide. And it sets out um, uh, a purpose test and a results test. So any provision that has the purpose or effect of impairing the right to vote on the ground of race violates the Voting Rights Act. <clears throat> so how do you go about proving that? And what the court basically held is, um, well, you know, voting isn't easy. Voting's never been easy. Uh, the job of Congress in passing the Voting Rights Act wasn't to make it easy. It was just to make sure there's no glaring over discrimination. So the two provisions of, an, of the Arizona voting scheme that the court <clears throat> upheld, reversing the lower court, which had invalidated them, uh, you know, on the surface, they don't look so silly. Uh, one uh, provision said, um, if you end up voting in the wrong precinct, uh, that's too bad for you. None of your votes will count. Your ballot won't count, even for those offices that don't depend on precincts, statewide offices, national offices, and so on. Uh, that was one. And, and actually, when I lived in Maryland, um, before I moved to Connecticut, I actually took training and I was an election judge in a, in a precinct. So I know how these things work. People, for all kinds of reasons, show up in the wrong precinct. So that was one. And the other was, um, uh, if you're voting absentee, mail-in ballot, and uh, the ballot is collected by somebody else that you're not related to, um, it's invalid. Uh, what, the, what the Republicans call ballot harvesting, that's the loaded word. So again, uh, you know, you can get an absentee ballot, so mail it in, put a stamp on it. I forget if you have to put a stamp on it, put it in. So the court was presented with these kinds of kind of day in and day out voting provisions. What the Alito majority opinion did is strip those of any context, uh, ignore the fact that in fact, precincts change in Arizona all the time without much notice and much more often in minority communities than not. So it's very common for people to go to vote where they've always voted and all of a sudden they're in the wrong precinct. And the ballot collection, uh, Arizona has Indian reservations, very rural places uh, with barely a post office with uh, people don't have cars, there's no mass transit. And so it's very common for a community group or community organizers to collect the ballots um, from people who cannot easily get them delivered any other way. Uh, so Alito forgets all that and just is like, what is the problem with this? Uh, the Elena Kagan dissent tells us what the problem is and uses these as emblematic for what you look at are the historic 
cultural, ethnic, whatever context in which these provisions were adopted. And that matters when you're asked to determine whether they violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So that's basically where we're, where we're left to right now. Uh, Jim Stark writes a question for you. He says, Justice Kagan accuses Justice Alito's majority opinion in the voting rights case of being a, quote, law-free zone. Do you agree that the opinion ignores the text and plain meaning of the statute and follows up what accounts for the court's hostility to the Voting Rights Act? Well, I mean, it, it follows the text, but it wrenches the text out of the context in which that text was adopted. So to that extent, yes, I think I think Justice Kagan is is quite right. Let's go back to the early 1980s. So in 1980, the Supreme Court had a decision called um, Bolden against City of Mobile. It was a Section 2 case. And the court um, uh, determined that Congress in passing Section 2 had only meant to have uh, a, a, a purpose test if if the plaintiff couldn't show that the provision they're complaining about was enacted for the purpose of suppressing the vote because of racial prejudice, uh, they lose. Congress, in fact, had not meant that. And so Congress uh, amended Section 2 to make it clear that it was not only purpose, but also results. There was a young lawyer in the Reagan uh, administration Justice Department at that time who was given the portfolio to um, oppose this amendment. And if it passed to get the president to veto it, his name was John Roberts. Okay, he was right off his clerkship um, with uh, <clears throat> Justice William Rehnquist before Rehnquist became Chief Justice. And uh, memos that Roberts wrote from, those, from that time came out <clears throat> from the Reagan Library when Roberts was nominated by President Bush in 2005 to be Chief Justice. So he he had a problem with the Voting Rights Act, you know, when he was in his 20s. And, uh, and he's got some friends on the Supreme Court. And what exactly their problem is, um, I wouldn't venture to guess, but, uh, but there's some real radical thinking going on on that side of the court. There was a concurring opinion that hasn't gotten much notice, and I don't quite... I'm not quite sure I fully grip it myself from, um, I think it was Thomas and Gorsuch, if I'm not wrong, who said, by the way, uh, this case never raised the question of whether there's an implied private right of action under Section 2. What that means to translate, what that means is, uh, can, an can an individual bring a Voting Rights Act case? My voting rights have been impaired. I have a Section 2 claim. Does... Does the statute contemplate that? That's something that I was unaware of is bubbling up there. But but for two justices to highlight that, saying we, we can't decide that here because the, nobody's raised that, uh, means that that's sort of next down the line. So there's a great deal of animus uh, flowing in the waters on the Supreme Court on these issues. And is the expectation that a court that is stacked this particular way that has shown that it has this particular animus toward the Voting Rights Act as it stands, that as states continue to pass more and more restrictive laws, cases will be brought against them. The court has already shown they will take up said cases. And over the course of the next couple of years, 
we could see more and more instances of voting rights being stripped away? Well, I mean, not to sound partisan about this, but I think this is an objective statement that I think that the National Republican Party has decided that the only way it can win elections is by suppressing the vote of people who might be voting against them. Okay? So you've got a huge motivation in the states to do exactly what you said. Now, counter to that is the fact that um, states also have courts. And we saw that in the aftermath of the 2020 election, that um, some state courts, like this, the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, actually uh, put their foot down in what they saw was um, efforts to undo the Biden victories in those states. So uh, there are state causes of action that people can bring. And there are, um, we have the 14th and the 15th Amendment. So the Constitution, uh, one on equal protection and one on the right to vote, that people can come up with ways to actually invoke those amendments, not just the statute as interpreted by the Supreme Court. So I'm not at all trying to be uh, Pollyanna about this, but, um, but we've got a complicated landscape. We've got very motivated people digging in against uh, democracy, you might say. And we've got some very smart people working on ways to get out of this. And, you know, obviously the rational thing to do would be for some national legislation, which is pending in Congress to pass. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. So it'll have to be done uh, retail rather than uh, wholesale out of Washington. A last quick thought on this, a question from Jacqueline who says, do you, do you see it as a lost cause, a lost cause to fight these laws in court? Can you see a window for maybe split votes or bipartisanship amongst amongst members of the court? Well, we'll see that pretty soon because uh, the week before this case came down, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland filed a Section 2 Voting Rights Act case against the state of Georgia for the law that, they, that Georgia passed uh, in January of this year. It was a very carefully written complaint uh, knowing that the chance of prevailing in the Arizona case that was then about to be decided was iffy. And so the very smart people in DOJ who, who uh, wrote this complaint uh, anticipated a bad outcome in the Arizona case and have tried to uh, build the strongest case they, they can under Section 2. And, um, you know, maybe they'll get somewhere with that. That'll be, that'll be really the... I hate to say ultimate, but it'll be major, major test because you've got the power of the federal government now coming in and saying, you know, this is what, this is how we understand the law as it exists. Here's how we plan to use it uh, to push back against what's, against what's been going on. And over to you, Supreme Court. So we'll, so we'll see. That's New York Times columnist Linda Greenhouse. She has a new book coming out this fall titled Justice on the Brink. The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. In part two of our conversation, we'll get deeper into the politics of the court, including the calls for Justice Stephen Breyer to step down so that President Biden can get a nominee through a democratically controlled Senate. And also, we'll talk about what she thinks about the concept of court packing and expanding the number of justices, What she says might surprise you. Thanks so much to Kyle Constable and Bruce Potterman for their help producing this episode. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson provided the steady beats, and they were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. 
If you want to support the nonprofit journalism we have here at the Connecticut Mirror, go to ctmirror.org and just click on the donate button. We can't continue to bring you this high quality coverage without your support. Thanks so much. I'm John Dankowski, and we'll talk to you soon.